Well, hey, good morning, Plum Creek. I want to say welcome to all of you today, and I also want to say happy Mother's Day. Uh, we really hope all of you moms feel loved and honored and appreciated today, and that's why we're sending you out with a cute little bunt cake this morning. Uh, you can pick these up in the gathering area on your way out today. And these, these cakes are not very large, um, but that size is actually an advantage because that means you don't have to share. So that's a good thing. Uh, now, for many of us, Mother's Day, it's, it's just a really happy day. Uh, for some of us, though, it's rough. And if that's you, I, wanna, I, I just want to say we remember you and I'm praying for you this morning. You know, it's always interesting, every Sunday we have a wide range of life situations represented here. And for some of us, uh, we're in a, a good place with God. Our, our relationship with Him is strong. Uh, for others, we're struggling. And then for some of us, this, this has been a great year so far. For others, it's been a really difficult year. And as a preacher, I, I find it difficult to speak to every life situation at the same time. So I know what I need to do is just share the Word of God and let Him take it from there. And that's the plan this morning, uh, just like every other week. And with that in mind, uh, we're going to wrap up our three-week sermon series called Kingdom Coming. Uh, we've been looking at some of the things that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. In those two chapters, Jesus told us several things that will happen in the future. First, he said, he is coming back. We don't know exactly when, but that day is coming. And then after Jesus returns, God's kingdom will appear in its final, fully realized, eternal form. God will destroy all of his enemies, and he will rule and reign in a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. And because of Jesus, all of us are invited to be a part of this kingdom. But as we've seen in this series, not everyone will be there. Not everyone is ready for the return of Jesus. So we've identified three action steps that we all need to take as we go through this series. Number one, be ready for the coming kingdom. Number two, be excited and long for this kingdom. And number three, serve Jesus until the kingdom comes. So be ready, be excited, and serve until the end. Now, we've looked at steps one and two over the last two weeks, but this morning we're going to focus on step number three. And to do that, we're going to ask a very big question. It's one of the most important questions you could ever ask. Here it is. Today's big question. What does God want me to do with my life? See what I mean? This is a big one. We, we want to have a clear answer to this. So let's jump into God's Word, and we'll let Him speak to us today. We're going back to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, last week, we read the parable of the ten virgins, or the ten bridesmaids. And today, we're going to look at the parable of the talents. And this is another great story that Jesus told, and it will help us answer this big question. So let's go ahead and read Matthew 25, starting with verse 14. Jesus said, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now before we get into this story, we need to deal with the word it. What, what is Jesus referring to here with the word it? 
Well, some of you know he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that is yet to come. So let's keep that in mind, and we'll start again. This time we'll keep reading. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. So we have four main characters here. We have a wealthy master, and then we have his three servants. And the symbolism here is pretty obvious. The the wealthy master represents Jesus, and these three servants represent his followers. And in the story, the master was going on a big trip, and before he took off, he left a, a certain amount of money with each of these three servants. The first one got five talents. The second got two talents. And the last one got only one talent. Now, in the the New Testament, a talent is actually a unit of weight. It's like a pound or an ounce. So that means you could have a talent of gold. You could also have a talent of silver. You could even have a talent of bricks. And because of that, I can't give you an exact value of this money in modern-day terms, but I can give you a decent estimate. We actually talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at a different parable. Um, but many scholars say that in this story, a talent would, would represent the value of uh, 20 years' wages for the average day worker. Now, in our country today, the average day worker makes about $36,000. So in our parable, the master left the one-talent servant with approximately $720,000, because it's 20 years' wages. So that's a decent amount of money. And if we do some quick math, we can see that the other two servants received over $1.4 million and then $3.6 million, respectively. So this was a big responsibility for all three servants. However, the servants handled that responsibility very differently. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. All right, cha-ching, he doubled his money. But he who also, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Same thing, he doubled his money. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So there's a huge difference here. Servants number one and number two, they put their money to work. They invested wisely and they got a 100% rate of return. Now, you have to believe those first two servants, they felt a weight of responsibility. They felt obligated to do something good with the master's money. But then that's a huge contrast to the one talent guy. He literally dug a hole and put that $720,000 into the ground. Now, why would he do that? Where did he get that idea? Well, there could be several reasons why he did. He, he might have been afraid to invest because he thought he might lose some or all of that money. Or it could be that he just wanted to bury it in the ground and get on with his life and do whatever he felt like doing. So he just wanted to have a good time, had no sense of urgency. But the truth is that one talent guy should have had a sense of urgency because the master did come back. He returns in verse 19. 
Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Uh, the joy of your master. So it's the same story with these first two servants. When the master returns, he declares that both of them were faithful. And do you see why he calls them faithful? They're faithful because they were good stewards of his money. They, they doubled what he had entrusted to them. But let's go back and see what happened to the one talent guy. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will, be, will more be given." and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that escalated quickly. And what do you think about this master? Seems a little harsh, doesn't he? I mean, I, I would agree with that, but we should look at it this way. When the master came back, he made a discovery. He, he discovered that the one-talent guy was not a true servant of his. In reality, he was focused on himself, either out of fear or out of selfishness. So when the master severed that relationship, he was just stating out loud what the one-talent man had already chosen. The one-talent servant, he chose to reject his role. He rejected the relationship that the master wanted to have with him. And that's the end of the story. So now it's time for the application. How does this parable apply to our lives? How does it, how does it apply in our church or in your family or to you personally? Well, let's put ourselves in the place of these servants. What has God entrusted to us? What kind of blessings have we been given now, this parable is specifically about talents or money, and that's certainly part of the story. But it's, it's actually more than that. God has entrusted us with all kinds of gifts, including time and talent and treasure. In your lifetime, you will have a certain number of years and days and hours and minutes. Every one of the minutes God gives you, it, it's a gift. In, in your lifetime, you will also have a certain amount of money. Uh, this week, I, I saw a report that said the average American will earn 
about $2.7 million in their lifetime. So most of you are millionaires. That's pretty cool. And God has also entrusted you with certain gifts and abilities and talents. Uh, He's done this for all of us. And just like the servants in this parable, God wants us to manage and steward these gifts for the work of His kingdom. In fact, He expects us to steward these gifts for His kingdom. And when Jesus returns, we will account for what we've done. And as we saw in this parable, the the first two servants received a great reward for being good stewards. But there were serious consequences for the one-talent guy. He was thrown into the darkness in a place where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's your application. Be like servant number one or servant number two, and don't be like servant number three. Now, how do you feel about that? I'm guessing for some of us, this parable is inspiring. We walk away motivated to be a a better steward of what God has given us. And if so, that's great. But I want to speak to a different group today. I want to speak to the person who sees this one-talent servant, and you start to get a little nervous. You start to think, wow, am I doing enough? When, when Jesus comes back, what will he say to me? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say, throw that worthless servant out into the darkness? This is an, an important question because many people feel like they're always trying to win God's approval or maintain God's approval. And they're never quite sure if they've done enough. And I should probably warn you, if you keep reading in Matthew 25... You might feel even more anxiety because Jesus goes on and he describes another picture of this coming kingdom. I won't read the whole passage, but I'll give you a quick summary. Jesus says, at the end of this age, after he comes back, he will separate people into two categories. You'll have the sheep and you'll have the goats. And you definitely want to be a sheep. The sheep are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. They'll get to be with Jesus for all eternity. Now, if you're a goat, your future is not so bright. Jesus says the goats will be sent away into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, that is disturbing, to say the least. Because how does Jesus decide who is a sheep and who is a goat? Based on this passage, it looks like it's all based on the way you live here on earth. Did you feed the hungry? Did you welcome strangers? Did you visit the sick? Did you do a bunch of good deeds? If so, you're a sheep. If not, you're a goat. So do you see what I mean? These these two stories that we're looking at here, they, they might lead you to question your salvation. I mean, how many hungry people do you have to feed before you're considered a sheep? How many good deeds does it take for Jesus to decide that I'm not a goat? Well, there's a phrase that I've been using a lot lately. Whenever we find something that is confusing or disturbing in the Bible, what should we do? We should interpret Scripture with Scripture. So let's do that. Uh, If all we read is Matthew 25, it looks like we will be saved or condemned based on what we do in this life. But last Sunday, we read a very important passage in Ephesians chapter 2. 
The Apostle Paul is writing here, and Paul says, for it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And and what's the main point here? Paul is saying that salvation is a free gift. We're all sinners. We all deserve death. But Jesus paid the penalty for our sin when he went to the cross. And if you come to Jesus in faith and you give your life to Him, you can receive this gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. And that message is not just in Ephesians 2. It's in lots of places in the Bible, like Galatians 2. Galatians 2.16 says, A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a consistent message across Scripture. We're justified by faith. And we need to be clear about the meaning of this word justified. To be justified means that you are in good standing with God. Justification is when God declares us to be righteous. And we're not justified or made right with God by reaching a certain level of good works. Because we could never be good enough on our own. So it's not about our performance It's not about human effort, just working like mad to win God's approval. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. But if all that's true, what about Matthew 25? What about the parable of the talents? What about the sheep and the goats? Well, I hate to tell you this, but it gets even more complicated. We also have to deal with verses like James 2.24, That's where James says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Okay, so what do we do with that? Is it even possible to reconcile these two ideas? Well, years ago, I heard an illustration from Dr. Jack Cottrell, one of my seminary professors. It's about the clearest explanation I've seen for the tension between faith and works. And I've shared this here before, but it's been a long time. So I want to show you a picture. It's a picture of three big gears. Now that gear on the lower left, the one with the J on it, that stands for justification, uh, being justified or made right with God. The one at the top there with the letter F, that stands for faith. And remember, faith is not just believing in Jesus, it's belief plus trust, putting your life in His hands. And then the third gear with the W, that represents works, the good works that we should see from someone who is following Jesus. Over time, we should look more and more like Jesus. Now, this J gear, that's the one that drives everything because God is the one who initiated this justification. He he initiated this gift of grace. He, He sent Jesus to this earth. He died for us while we were still sinners. So God is the one who drives the J-gear. And then that starts spinning all by itself. But then how do we get that W-gear to spin? How do we live out those good works that resemble the way Jesus lived? Well, it kind of feels like we got to make those good works happen by human effort. But that's not the message of grace. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So now this gear at the top, it's movable. There's a handle attached to it. You can't see it, but I I promise it's there. 
And when you put your faith in Jesus, when you come to Him, it's like you're taking that handle and you're moving it down closer to the other two gears. So what's the result? Well, this is the cool part. Remember, the first gear is driven by God. That's justification. But now when that first gear rotates, it also spins the second gear, faith, and the last gear works. And that's exactly what happens in your life. When your faith in Jesus is real, you have the presence of God's Holy Spirit in you, and the Spirit transforms you into the image of Christ. So in the end, what will save you? Is it faith plus works? No, this is exactly what Paul is saying. We're saved by grace, the the gift of God, by grace through faith. If it's faith plus works, then you're still trying to earn your salvation. So what is it then? Is it faith without good works? No, that's one of the main themes of the book of James. James says faith without works, it's a dead faith. It's useless. When your faith is genuine, there will be evidence. So what is it then? Is there another option? Yes, the other option is faith which works. Paul and James both agree on that. And hopefully, that helps us make sense of Matthew 25. We're not uh, not saved by working to win God's approval. But at the same time, God does expect us to be good stewards of the gifts that he's entrusted to us. In fact, this is another thing that Paul writes back in Ephesians 2. Right after he says we're saved by grace through faith, he goes on to say, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this is one of the reasons why we exist. We were created by God to do good works. Far in advance, God knew the good works that he had planned for you to do. Now, there's an obvious follow-up question here. What exactly are those good works? What exactly is it that God wants you to do? Well, we could start by looking at what Jesus called the greatest commandments. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, love God and love people. That, that's a good start, but it's, it's not very specific. So, what specifically does God want you to do? What are the good, good works that He has in mind for you? Well, if you want to answer that question, I have an idea for you. Uh, sometime this week, sit down and take an inventory of all the blessings and gifts that God has given you. That does include your treasure, your finances. It also includes the time that He's given you and your talents. Also, your opportunities and your experiences. So, write down everything you can think of. And then when you have that list, pray about how God might use those gifts to bless the world and bring glory to Him. The reality is, God has positioned you to love God and love others in a unique way. No one else can make the impact that you can make. So every day, you have a choice. You can either leverage your gifts for God, or you can bury them in the ground. And what does this look like in your life? Well, maybe you do show compassion to the hungry and the poor and the sick and the stranger. And that, that's all very good. 
And that's part of why we did the, the week of serving a couple weeks ago. And we'll continue to do things like that. But followers of Jesus also have a more specific calling. And we can't neglect it. The specific calling is often called the Great Commission. And some of you are very familiar with the Great Commission, but let's make sure we're all up to speed. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and this is shortly before he leaves this earth to return to the Father. And he said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So that's the Great Commission. All of us who follow Jesus are called by God to go out and make more disciples. And if you flip over to Acts chapter 1, Jesus also tells us where we should go and make these disciples. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus is once again talking to his disciples. And once again, this is shortly before he returns to heaven. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we've got three arenas here. Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then the end of the earth. And we could think of these three arenas in terms of three concentric circles. So when the church first started, Jerusalem was their local community. That's the place, uh, the first place where they made disciples. But as time went by, the church went out and made more disciples in the surrounding region, uh, throughout Judea and in places like Samaria. And then from there, the church just exploded out to the ends of the earth. And that was God's plan for the New Testament church. But it's also God's plan for the church today. Here's how it works in our time. Our Jerusalem is the community directly around us. That includes your local friends, family, neighbors, everybody who's right around here. Our Judea and Samaria, that would include the surrounding region, so northern Kentucky, the tri-state area, and even beyond. Finally, God calls Christians to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why Plum Creek partners with missionaries and church planners all over the world. So a healthy church will have an impact in all three of these levels, local, regional, and global. That's the plan, and we can see that if we go back to the verse. Did you notice something here? Jesus did not say, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem or Judea and Samaria or to the end of the earth. No, it's not or, it's and. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here at Plum Creek, our outreach takes place in all three arenas. We share the message of Jesus here in our community, but we also take the gospel regionally and globally. And I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're part of the Plum Creek family, I encourage you to think about this on a personal level. Where is your Jerusalem? How are you making disciples here right around in this community? And then where is your Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth? How are you helping to make disciples there? Remember, we don't want to think of this in terms of or, we want to think in terms of and. Now, I realize this can sound overwhelming, and I don't want you to feel weighed down this morning. There's no need to feel overwhelmed. 
Because God knows you're just one person. You can't be everywhere. You can't do everything. But you can identify the gifts and opportunities that God has entrusted to you and then ask Him to help you use those gifts for His kingdom. For example, if you are a parent with kids still at home, your children are part of your Jerusalem. In fact, they are some of the most precious gifts that God has entrusted to you. I really feel led to say a word about this because uh, for several years now, too many people, too many young people have grown up in church, but then as they became adults, they walked away from their faith. So what does it look like to make disciples of our children? Well, first of all, we can't make that happen, but God wants to partner with us. God works through His people to lead other people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So if you're a parent, I encourage you to be intentional about this. If you want to raise your kids to follow Jesus, you have to teach them to live a countercultural life. They can't just go with the flow. And this is how it's been for 2,000 years Following Jesus has always required countercultural living, no matter what culture you live in. For example, if you lived in certain areas of the American South 200 years ago, your surrounding culture had a belief that human slavery is not only moral, it's endorsed by God. Now, you probably won't hear that message in our culture today, and that is a very good thing. However, there are many areas where today's culture runs counter to the message of Christ. For example, right now, there's a large segment of our culture that believes human beings are merely animals. Now, if you start with that belief, there are all kinds of ramifications there. There's also a segment of our culture that's teaching kids to be confused about their sexuality and or gen gender. Now, Obviously, some kids would already struggle in that area, but others would not be confused without that cultural influence. Then there's also an extremely vocal group in our culture who believe that it's not morally wrong to end the life of an unborn child. Now, I don't have time to get into the specifics on all these issues. I'm just making the point that there are many areas in which Christians need to live in a countercultural way. And here's my concern. If you look at the track record of kids who have grown up in the church over the past couple decades, it's clear that for many young people, the culture has had a stronger influence than the truth of God's Word. And why might that be? Well, think about it. If a child growing up hears a certain message one or two hours a week, maybe at church, but then they also hear a completely different message 40 hours a week through peers or entertainment or social media or whatever, what influence is likely to win out? 40 is likely to be two, right? I know this can be discouraging, but there's no need to be pessimistic. I've seen, I've been so impressed by some of the young people who have grown up here at Plum Creek, and now they are living lives to honor God, to, to, to live and work for His kingdom. 
So this is possible. It's, it's possible for young people to grow up to know and follow Jesus, but it usually doesn't happen without direct mentoring and discipleship. And no, parents can't make their children follow Jesus, but parents can be intentional about pointing their kids to Jesus. And if you are a parent and you'd like some practical ideas for how to do that, please reach out to, to me or to Jimmy, our next-gen minister, or to Stephanie, our next-gen coordinator. We'd love to help with that. Now, I realize parenting is a huge task. I, I know that by experience. I also know that your Jerusalem not only includes your kids, but also other relatives and friends and neighbors and coworkers and so on. And then how can you even think about your, your Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? Well, like I said earlier, there's no need to be overwhelmed. Remember, we're not in some performance trying to win God's approval. God doesn't want any of us to burn out, and He also doesn't want us to neglect our responsibilities. But as we go through the day, God gives us opportunities. And when God leads you to an opportunity, just follow where He leads not by your power, but by the power of His Holy Spirit. And, and not to make yourself feel good, but to bring glory to God. And don't count on getting the results that you would like to see, but leave those results up to Him. You know, at the end of the day, it is a privilege to give yourself over to the work of God's kingdom. It's actually the best way that you can spend your life. And it reminds me of a question that we've been asking in this year of the kingdom at Plum Creek. We've been asking, if we follow wherever God leads, how much good could we do for His kingdom? And you know, as we've asked that question and we've prayed for God to lead us, He's taken us to some fun places. I was thinking this week about our beans and rice offering back in January. And here's how that worked in our family. Uh, like many of you, we ate cheap for a week, and with the money we saved, we gave to this special offering. And one of the purposes of that offering was to help take the gospel to unreached people in the country of Nepal. So that's hitting two circles at once. <laughs> one circle would be the ends of the earth, but we're also hitting our Jerusalem because we're discipling our kids to eat beans and rice and make a small sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. See, in many cases, we don't have to add more on top of what we're already doing. We just need to look for the opportunities that God brings and follow where He leads. In the end, I think we've found the answer to our big question. What does God want you to do with your life? He wants you to be ready for the coming kingdom. He wants you to look forward to the return of Jesus. And He wants you to serve Jesus until this kingdom comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for grace. I thank You for Jesus. I thank You for giving our lives meaning and purpose and partnering with us for the work of Your kingdom. And Lord, I do pray that everyone listening right now, we, we will be sure that we are ready for Jesus to return, we'll look forward to that day, and that we will serve until the kingdom comes. I pray that you will help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.